I wonder if you ever feel dirty. Um, I remember as a child, I used to love playing in the back garden with my best friend, Andrew. Uh, we used to go in the garden with uh, shovels and we actually used to play World War One. Uh, we would dig trenches and we'd get watering cans and turn them upside down and we'd shoot each other and we'd play out all day and my mother would shout from the, the kitchen in the back of the house, don't get dirty, don't get dirty. And me and Andrew, yeah, no problem, we won't get dirty. And we'd play and play and we'd keep looking at each other every once in a while, yep, yeah, we look clean, yep, yeah, we're all okay. And then dusk would come as it got darker and darker and we'd keep looking at each other. Yeah, everything's okay. We're not getting dirty. And then at some point, my mother would inevitably call us back in, time for tea. And as we'd go back into the kitchen, we'd kind of look at each other. Yeah, we're clean. We're okay. We're not dirty. And then when you walk across the threshold into the kitchen and you come under the strip light and my mother's standing right there, suddenly I became aware I'm filthy. I'm covered in mud. Outside, compared to my friend, I seemed fine. But inside, under the strip light, in front of the glare of my mother, I was filthy. I wondered, you know, what it's like to be dirty, not just physically with mud, but actually to feel on the inside dirty, polluted. I guess we have different words for this. Sometimes we call it guilt when we've done something we shouldn't have done or or sometimes we call it shame when perhaps someone else has done something to us and makes us feel bad we can have this feeling from things we've done things done against us things we haven't done that we should have done or the way sometimes we've done things and everybody's forgiven us but we can't forgive ourselves the question i will ask today is how do you get clean how do you get clean how do you get rid of the guilt and the shame Perhaps you think, well, I need to work it off. I need to do better. I need to make amends. Well, let's go to the Bible for an answer. We're going through the Gospel of Matthew. And today we're in Matthew chapter 3. So let me read the entire chapter to us. Matthew chapter 3, beginning of verse 1, all the way through to the end. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the river Jordan. But when he saw how many of the Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to where he was baptising, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe has been laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptise you with water for repentance. But after me, after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear up the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfil 
all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and delighting and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that as we come to this word now, uh, that as we sit watching this in our homes and in different places, Father, perhaps with various distractions going on all around us, oh, gracious Heavenly Father, would you speak to us? Father, we desire to know what it is to have peace, perfect peace, to know you, to be right with you, to live for you. So, Father, be with us now, we pray, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Let's walk through the passage and let's see three people. Well, two people and one group of people. But we're going to walk through the passage and see uh, three things. And the first person we need to see is John the Baptist. Now, we see John the Baptist in verses 1 to 6. Let me ask three questions about John the Baptist. Who was he? What did he say? And why did he say it? So, who was he? Well, verses 1 to 4 teach us uh, who he was. Now, we know from elsewhere that he's a relative of uh, Jesus. But verse 1 says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching preaching so he was a preacher a messenger and more importantly he was preaching in the wilderness in the wilderness in effect when you look at john the baptist he comes like a prophet like elijah you see the wilderness in the bible particularly in the old testament is often a place of judgment so when israel rebelled against god they went into the wandering wilderness into the wilderness And so in verse 4, we see his clothes. Here's the preacher in the wilderness. Verse 4, what's he wearing? Clothes made of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, eating locusts and wild honey. And really, this is all reminiscent of Elijah in the Old Testament. Remember, Elijah standing up against the king, going up onto Mount Carmel. And the locust reminds us of judgment from passages like Joel. But the wilderness isn't just a place of judgment, it's also a place of meeting with God and hearing from God. You remember the way Elijah met with God, you remember the way Moses heard from God, you remember the way the Israelites in the wilderness had the Shekinah glory of God, the the fire in the night and the smoke, the pillar of smoke in the day. And really this is amazing news because you see Matthew chapter 3 sees something amazing happen. A prophet has come and he's a prophet that looks and sounds like Elijah. And this is amazing news because it means that the silence is over. You see, from the end of the Old Testament, which was about 400 years before, there had been pretty much continual silence. God hadn't said anything. And so when this prophet rocks up, everybody, verse 5, starts running out to him from all over the place. God is speaking. The prophet has come. Now, Matthew chapter 11 fills us in. Uh, If you look forward to Matthew chapter 11 and verse 7, you see how the people reacted. So Matthew 11 verse 7 says this, As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in a king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, 
I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you truly I tell you among those born of women there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist everybody had been waiting years of silence and they'd been waiting for a prophet like Elijah do you remember the way the Old Testament finished so we're in the first book of the New Testament Matthew let's go to the last book of the Old Testament Malachi and the last two verses so turn back, go to Malachi verse 4 and uh, verse 5 and 6. This is, what, this is how the Old Testament ends. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. For 400 years, they'd been waiting for a prophet like Elijah. And when this prophet like Elijah would come, what would he do? He would bring the day of the Lord. That is, the king was going to come back with his kingdom. So, who is John the Baptist? John the Baptist is a prophet like Elijah. He is the one whom the Lord promises at the end of the Old Testament, and he rocks up here in Matthew chapter 3. So what did he say? We look at verse 2 and 3 of Matthew chapter 3. We see what he says very simply. There's two elements to his preaching, not three points like I have, but two elements to his preaching. Repentance and kingdom. Repentance and kingdom. So the first thing he teaches is repentance. Now, repentance means to be sorry for something and switch your behaviour. So sorry from the heart, it's an inward emotional thing. It's a genuine affection of the soul. And then there is a switch you need to change. So in effect, I'm going this way, I feel my sin and I switch my way. It's something which affects the heart, where you're sorry from, and your hands, the way you live. Uh, Don Carson says this, Repentance is a radical transformation of the entire person, a fundamental turnaround involving mind and action and including overtones of grief, which results in fruit. Really, as Michael Green says, repentance is the inescapable beginning. Now, in one sense, what's going on in uh, Matthew chapter 3 is a lawsuit against Israel. They've not been faithful to God. God has been silent for 400 years and now John is calling them to repent. But it's also a message to individuals like you and me. I mean, we need to repent, don't we? There are things we feel dirty about, things that pollute us. So why is this repentance so urgent? Well, the second half of his message, the kingdom is near. The kingdom of heaven is near. Now, in the Old Testament, kingdom is about reign. Kingdom king, the reign of the king. And so in the Old Testament, they were waiting for the Messiah, the king, to come back. That's what we saw in Malachi. Now, many people thought that the king was going to come back with his kingdom with a physical reign. In effect, Israel was a shadow of its former self. It was tiny compared to its former glory. They were now under Roman occupation and they were expecting, in a sense, this king to come riding on a white horse, victorious, bringing in the kingdom. But actually, it's much more than that. You see, the kingdom in the Old Testament wasn't just about power. It wasn't just about politics. The kingdom of God in the Old Testament, Israel, was meant to be a light to the nations a holy people. They were meant to represent God and spread that amazingness. And now the king is coming back. And we know who the king is. Do you remember earlier in Matthew chapter 2 verse 2? Matthew 2 verse 2 says this, 
Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's being born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. People knew that the king was going to come. He was going to bring his kingdom back. And later on in this series in Matthew, we'll explore what that kingdom is like, needless to say. They need to repent because the king is coming back. So, who is he? He's a prophet like Elijah. What does he say? Repent, the kingdom is coming. Why did he say it? Why did he say it? Well, verses five and six, why does he say it? Because all the people come out to him. Why does he say it? Well, he says it because deep down it strikes a chord with everybody. That's why in verse five, they're all coming out. You see, John knew something that we all know deep down. In the kingdom of God, there are two options. You're either with the king or you're against the king. You're either for the king or you're against the king. And therefore, you either live under the king's blessing or the king's judgment. Now, this is huge. Sin is serious. And John the Baptist, according to this verse, is preparing the way. Do you see it there? In verse 3, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. That's why when they come out in verse 5, verse 6 tells us they confess their sins. He is, in the words of Isaiah 43, which is quoted here, making straight paths. What's he doing? He is preparing a way. So John the Baptist isn't about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is about another. He's about the king who's coming back for his kingdom. And the way he prepares the way, the way he makes the straight paths, is by preaching repent for the kingdom is coming. Now, this sounds quite heavy, doesn't it? Repentance, sin, dirt, judgment. John, what's going on? Well, actually, we need to realise that often this preaching of judgment is a preaching of hope. It's a preaching of hope. I read an account once of um, a guy who lived on an, on an island and there was a tsunami coming. And so the message had come out that this tsunami was coming, but so many people on the island didn't have telephones, didn't have technology. They just lived kind of, you know, with these kind of technologically um, not so advanced lives. And so this guy realised what was happening. And so he got on his motorbike and he just started driving around the island, shouting at everybody, there's a tsunami coming, get up high, get up high, get up high. He came and he declared, he preached, Repent, change your ways, move, just just get ready. The tsunami is coming. Now that sounds like a terrible message. There you are enjoying your day. Yeah, but hold on, I'm gardening, I'm sunbathing, I'm watching TV, whatever it is. He says, no, 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 get up high. It seems like a terrible message, but actually it's an amazing message. Because if you listen to the message, you get life. You get to live. You get life. John the Baptist comes and says, repent, for the kingdom is coming. Sounds like judgment. It is judgment, but it's far more than judgment. Because there's also life. That's why the Magi wanted to go and worship the king. Here comes the king with his kingdom, who's going to bring life. And so they come and they confess, and then they're baptised. The baptism is an outward sign of this inward reality of confession. I've repented, I've confessed, and then I am baptised to show that I've been cleansed. Show that I've been cleansed. Now, some of us are perhaps listening to this and thinking, John, I'm not that dirty. I'm not that bad. I look at my life and it's not that bad. But you're just like me and Andrew in the garden as kids 
compared to each other, we look pretty clean. But under the strip lighting in front of my mother, we realised how dirty we are. And over the last 18 months, two years, one of the things we've learned as a society, as a world, is even if you can't see the germs, even if you can't see the virus, it is powerful and it is potent. And that's exactly the same with us. Even if we can't see our moral failures, even if we can't see our rebellion against God, it can still be invisible but powerful. So John the Baptist brings this message and then he speaks to people like us who think like that. And that's the second thing we see is a group of people now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We've seen John the Baptist. Now let's look at these Pharisees and Sadducees, verses 7 to 10. Now John was causing a stir. And there were genuine people who were coming. They wanted to confess and repent and be baptised. But they were also curious people. People who just wanted to come and were what I want to call badge buyers. Badge buyers or badge wearers. That is, they just, they just wanted the badge. Virtue signalling. They just wanted to say they'd done it. And so they were coming out. Everybody's getting baptised. John the Baptist is baptising. Let's go and get baptised. Let's get more religious badges. But they weren't confessing their sins. They weren't truly repenting. It was merely external, not internal. And so John sees this. And so when they come, he uses the preacher's greatest tool, sarcasm, sarcasm. Do you see it there? He turns to these religious elite in front of all these people who are confessing their sins. And he says to them in verse seven, you brood of vipers, whoa. Who are you calling a brood of vipers? Here's the religious elite. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Do you know what they all would have thought? No one. There is no wrath to flee. They thought they were okay. They were Pharisees and Sadducees. They were the religious elite. They just wanted more badges. They just wanted to see what John was doing. And so he's sarcastic. He says, who told you to flee the wrath? Well, we don't need to flee the wrath, they think. And he says, look, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You need to change your life. You're living this way, you need to repent and live this way. And then, then he knows exactly what they're thinking. They're going, yeah, but, 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 but John, we have, what do we have? We have Abraham as our father. Look, John, look at my badge. I am an Israelite. I am a Jew. I am a descendant of Abraham, look at my badge. I'm okay. You see, John sees that these people don't think they need to repent or confess. They just want to get baptised, get the badge. They think their religious background and their pedigree is enough. This is like someone whose mother or father is a police officer and they get pulled over for speeding and they say, hey, don't worry about it, my dad's, my dad's a police officer. Let me off the speeding. But that's not how it works. John the Baptist is very clear to them. Verse 10, he says, the axe is at the root. The axe is at the root. A couple of weeks ago, um, I was home one day. Seth was um, off ill, bless him. And we looked out the garden and uh, there's a big tree outside the back of our house. It's a huge old tree. Now, the tree's been dead since we lived there. Um, and nothing has ever grown on it. But in the winds lately, large chunks of this big tree started falling down and they're quite heavy, even though the tree is, is rotting and dying. And so I remember looking at it one day and thinking, man, if that had fallen down on one of the kids, uh, you know, I don't think they would have survived. Anyway, someone had arranged for a tree surgeon to come 
and they cut the tree down. Now we watched it, but we had to watch it for about an hour and a half. It took ages for them to cut this tree down. I was fascinated by how they did it. But the moment they got there, and they got, well, not the axe, they got a chainsaw, modern day axe. As soon as that chainsaw was at the root of the tree, there was no going back. There was no going back. And the axe is at the root of the tree. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious elite, the people who think they're okay because they have Abraham as their father. John is saying the axe is at the root. You need to repent. See, there are two wrong assumptions. Number one, religious observance is enough. As long as I'm baptised, it's okay. John says no. The other wrong assumption is this. Religious upbringing is enough. I'm a child of Abraham. John says no. But there is hope. Real hope. Verse 9. Verse 9, he says, look, don't worry about Abraham to being your father. He says, look, he says, out of these stones, God can raise up children from Abraham. Why is God raising up children from stones encouraging? Because, well, what can stones do? What can stones do to save themselves? What can stones do to bring themselves back to life? Nothing, they're stones. So if God can bring stones to life, he can bring anybody to life whether you have Abraham as your father or not. So important to understand that, that this repentance that John is teaching is not a work. I don't repent in order to earn God's favour. No, actually, repentance isn't just about moral issues. It includes moral issues, but it's not just about moral issues. Really, what repentance is, is I am facing this way and this way is my way. And my way is I do everything and I can save myself and I'm okay. Repentance is stopping, stopping going your own way, stopping trusting yourself and turning around, not just from your old way of life, not just from trusting yourself, but turning around, repenting to the kingdom of God is near, the one who can give you life. Repentance is turning from pride, which says I am the answer, to faith which is saying Christ is the answer. Repentance is not a work. Repentance is giving up your works and taking on faith. That's what the gospel all really is. Uh, Dane Ortland in his book called Deeper says this, we must come face to face with who we really are, left to our own stream. We are sinners and we will go away from God and we will be out of his kingdom. It goes on and says this, Christian salvation is not assistance, it is rescue. The gospel does not take our good and complete us with God's help. The gospel tells us we're dead and helpless, unable to contribute anything to our rescue, but the sin that requires it. So where does the rescue come from? Where's well, what I'm saying. We're repenting to Jesus. So thirdly and finally, let's look at Jesus. Verse 11 to 17. You see, we need more than repentance. What do we need? I'm saying we need faith. John the Baptist says in verse 11, look, I baptise you with water for repentance. Basically, John is saying, I know that what I do isn't enough. What I do is preparatory. You see, John the Baptist is in a unique period of time. He's after the end of the Old Testament, but it's still kind of Old Testament times. And he's at the start of Jesus. Jesus is here, but it really it's the, the inauguration, the beginning of Jesus's new kingdom. And so John the Baptist, what he does is unique. It's very unique. It's for that time in salvation history. And he understands 
what does he say verse 3 that he has come to prepare the way to make straight paths for him he knew that we need more than repentance and water we need more than repentance and water rather he looks forward to one who would come and he would come who is more powerful because what he does isn't powerful enough to save us and he will come someone who's so powerful that john the baptist isn't even worthy to hold his sandals to clean his boots he's not worthy enough to do any of that and he's going to baptize you not with water but with the holy spirit and fire holy spirit in the in the old testament is about empowerment so there's power and fire is about purification taking away all impurities see when we repent and turn away from ourselves we turn to christ the one who can give us the holy spirit and fire you see if we don't do this verse 12 the winnowing fork is on its way judgment is on its way basically you can go your own way but you will live under god's judgment and die or you can repent and give up your own way and turn to christ and know his baptism you see really today's sermon can be summed up in two words number one repentance and number two represent us let me explain what i mean repentance we've had a look at we need to turn away can't save ourselves so what can we do we'll look at the one who represents us represents us you see in the bible um there's a federal system a, a system whereby we're represented by people so in the bible adam is the first person and so adam is the federal head of the world and so everybody born after adam is in adam so what adam did we do so you can think of it today in terms of of money so if you have loads and loads and loads of money whoever's born into your family is born into that money that money is theirs it's a weak illustration but it helps you understand more so we have a bit of a system like that now in terms of sport so in the olympics if someone from great britain goes to play if they win we win if they lose we lose they represent us we are in effect in them but in those days it was even more so because if a king went to war or a queen went to war if they won you won if they lived you lived but if they lost you would be changed completely to living under another king so under adam he failed god israel failed god we fail god but jesus comes as another adam a new adam the second adam he comes to represent us and this time unlike adam he doesn't fail see jesus comes in and he lives the perfect life he is completely clean jesus does not need to rep uh, repent because jesus always goes god's way he always does the will of the father he always follows the bible he is perfect and so he comes and so he comes and he does it in our place that's what's going on here see john says look jesus is going to come and look he's going to be so powerful he's going to be amazing and then when he comes john the baptist sees jesus coming and and look they're cousins they know each other john the baptist knows that jesus is perfect john the baptist knows that jesus does not mess up and so when he comes in verse 13 he says to john hey john you need to baptize me and john goes no i don't need to baptize you you need to baptize me because jesus you're perfect jesus i'm a mess 
Jesus, you don't need to repent. Jesus, you don't need to be cleaned. Jesus, you are clean. You are perfect. And then Jesus says, no, no, no. I need to come and be baptised by you. Why? Verse 15. So that all righteousness will be fulfilled. What is going on here? It's because Jesus knows he is coming to represent us. And by Jesus being represented, he is now in the incarnation, in our world, in our bodies. He is one of us. And in his baptism, he is in effect coming and saying, they need to repent and I'm going to come and be baptised to show that I'm representing them. That I am representing them. That all that I do, I am doing for them. The baptism shows that Jesus is going to live a life representing us but in that baptism in this incarnation that actually when he goes to the cross he doesn't need to die he shouldn't die he doesn't have to be punished because he is perfect but he's representing us the baptism shows that and so when he goes to the cross he doesn't go to pay for his own sins he doesn't go to be punished for his own failings he goes to pay for our sins he goes to be punished for our iniquities and transgressions that's what he does and so he is representing us. The baptism shows that Jesus comes to represent us. So that now, if we turn away from trusting ourselves, repent and trust in Christ, the one who lived the perfect life in our place, dies in the cross on our place, we will now have new life. Do you see how heaven reacts to this? How does heaven react? As soon as he's baptised, comes out to the water, the dove of the Holy Spirit descends on him and the Father sends from heaven, says from heaven, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. Why? Because this is the heart of God. The heart of God is that sinners like you and me, sufferers like you and me, strugglers like you and me, can go free, can be made right, can be cleansed, can be given righteousness. That's why he does it. And heaven loves it. Do you know the amazing thing is? You've got to hear this. Because Jesus obeyed the Father, the Father was able to say, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. But Jesus is doing that to represent us. Which means when you become a Christian, Jesus takes our sin, but also gives us his righteousness. And one of the words for becoming a Christian is being adopted heavenly adoption we become a child a son of our heavenly father which means we're not adopted because we deserve it we're not adopted because we earned it we're not adopted because we're good enough we're adopted because of what jesus did his righteousness which means we are now clothed in christ so when the father sees us he sees christ and his righteousness which means in the gospel stay with me on this the father says to us this is my son whom i love with him I am well pleased. Hallelujah, what a gospel. What a message. It sounds so radical, it sounds so crazy, it doesn't seem true. But it is, it is. When you turn away from your own, your own way of saving yourself and you repent and trust in Christ and put your faith in him, the fact that he has lived the perfect life in your place, been baptised and died in your place, risen from the dead victorious and ascended to heaven, when you trust in him, put your faith in him, all that is yours is his and all that is his is yours. It is the glorious exchange. 
my question to you is this have you repented given up your own way have you turned to christ trusted in him and all that he has done because if you do you are in his kingdom you're a child of the king and he loves you and he keeps you and he blesses you and he makes his face to shine upon you or you will struggle and you will need to repent each and every day but you are his and is all on christ and he has you forever father we thank you for your word we thank you for matthew chapter 3 father we thank you that christ has come and he has lived in our place and died in our place and so now father by his grace and your goodness and love we can know you oh father help us know you and enjoy you we pray in the name of jesus Amen.